Our sermon text this morning is John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving them then that they were about to come and take him by the force to make him king, Jesus withdrew him again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John chapter 6, if you haven't turned there already. John chapter 6. This has nothing to do with the text, but that won't stop me. Uh, six years ago today, uh, on a Sunday evening, on this very day, six years ago, Redemption City Church gathered together for the first time. Um, we were gathered in a liberal Presbyterian church in the northwest part of the city, and Adam began preaching through Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. We weren't really good church planters, and we were just churchmen. All we knew was church, so we had a Bible study on being Christ-centered, and then started preaching through Ephesians. That's, that's, that's all we know, and here we are, doing the same thing, mostly. Um, several of you families, I won't name you by name to, to point you out, but I know exactly who you are, have been with us through this whole journey. And it's been humbling, and it's been wonderful to be with you guys through these past six years. It's been an absolute delight to be with all of you guys. So I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you to all of you. Uh, God has brought us through six wonderful years, which is kind of him, is gracious to him. He's held us through that time. But what's even better is that we are six years closer to glory. And for that, I am truly, truly thankful. Thank you for opening up your lives and your homes and worshiping God with us. Yeah, Fahim and myself, Rachel and Molly, uh, we love you guys. We love you guys. So that'll suffice for the introduction. I'm going to go ahead and pray, uh, and then we'll just get jumped right into the text. 
Heavenly Father, we, we want to behold the Lamb who is worthy to be slain. We are not worthy to be slain, but God, we must be slain in our sins if we don't turn and trust in your Son. So as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts, humble our minds to receive your word, that we might know you and love you and serve you the way you must be served, the way you demand to be served. God, let us be faithful to you with our fleeting lives. Let us now sit under your enduring word that we might love you more. Amen. So what are we going to be doing with this text? Where are we going to be going? We have this unorthodox introduction, but it is what it is. I want you to see, out of all of this, out of this feeding of the 5,000 that Ben just read, this feeding of the 5,000, what are we going to take away from it? Is that Jesus is the prophet of God. It's not what you think. It's not what you might think you should be drawing from this text. But that Jesus is the true and great prophet of God. We're going to be seeing this in several ways as this story kind of builds up. Verses 1 through 6, we're going to be seeing the following. The, the, the multitudes of people following Christ. Why are they there? Why are they following him? That's a good question. You should ask yourself the same question. Why am I following Christ? Verses 7 through 11, we're going to be seeing this feeding, this miraculous miracle that Christ does. Uh, the only time he, this in the feeding of the 4,000, the only time he creates out of nothing. The other times he mends what is broken here. He's creating out of nothing. Quite miraculous. And then finally, we see here in verses 12 through 15, the fulfillment of what the true prophet is. So we see here that the following and the feeding and then the fulfillment of Christ as the prophet. So let's go back into the text here. Let's read verses 1 through 6. After Jesus, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with the disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy, the, all of the, why are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Just a brief reminder. We hear Ben reading the story here, and, and our hearts and minds are swept away, and we begin to think that we are somehow missing out because we're not there. We want to be in the moment. We want to be able to live through it. And so then we think as though we're kind of second-class Christians because... All we have is the text, and the text is our, the way we can get back to the event. But that's not it at all. God doesn't reveal himself for us. He doesn't reveal himself through those events 2,000 years ago. God reveals himself through his word, through the text. So we're actually in a position of privilege. 
The, the event will just happen one time. But we have our whole lives to meditate on this, to read it over. So the text is not just a means by which we are able to go back. It's not like a, a, a novel that you're going to read. And then it brings you back to the moment. And that moment is where God is revealing himself. The text itself is the revelation of God. It doesn't have the revelation of God. It's not the means to the revelation of God. The text itself is the revelation of God. So as we're going through John, again, another reminder, don't feel as though we're second-class Christians because we weren't there. Or that you might have responded differently. Or if only I could have seen it. No, no, no. You have the text of God. You have the full fullness of the revelation of God. You have the complete canon. You know where it's all going. And not only that, you have John interpreting the events and then putting them and crafting the story in such a way. So don't feel as though you're second-class citizens as you are reading this. So then how do we... How do we interpret this story? Okay, let's go back to chapter 5 and what's happening there. And Adam was, was preaching. And Jesus heals this man who's been sick and ill for 38 years. And what's the main point of the story? Is that Jesus is the great physician? No, no. That's not the point of the story. He heals the man. It's on the Sabbath. All the other the Pharisees come around him and they're saying, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing that. And Jesus says, well, I can do it. I'm equal with, with God the Father. His whole point in healing the man is to say that he is God. So, in our text, we read that Jesus is feeding all of these people. Is the whole point that Jesus is the great humanitarian? Maybe not. Is it true? Yeah, he is. No one else cares for humanity like he does. Is it true that Jesus is the great physician? Yes, no one binds us up like Jesus does, but that's not the point of chapter 5. And so what do we just see in chapter 6? How do we read gospel narrative? Basically, that's the question. How do we read this as John would have us to understand it? Let's pull some of this out of this, this artwork. Let's go ahead and pull a couple brush strokes out and just see how is John framing up this situation in your head. Okay, so what is John wanting us to see? It's happening during the Passover. And you have a prophet. And you have a multitude of people walking in the wilderness. And they're fed miraculously. How is John wanting us to understand this whole story? Does it make sense? John is pulling this Exodus theme and placing this story right on top of it so that you can understand it in the proper way. So is Jesus the great humanitarian? Absolutely. Is that the point of this text? I would say probably not. What John is trying to show you is that Jesus is the prophet. The people reach the right conclusion at the end. But see how the gospel, it's, it's not like this... When we, we love Paul and Peter and James because they'll just give it to you, right? But then we have poetry, which is this slow meandering through. But gospel narratives, it's, it's kind of right in the middle. It has this didactic teaching, but it, it kind of meanders a little bit as well. 
So read it over and over and over and over again. And let the story come to you. And your eyes will be opened. To we, just, we just kind of scratch the depth of it in this lifetime. We have all, all of eternity to plumb the depths of this. So now in this setting here, we have this, this parallel with, with the Exodus. And with the Exodus, we have Moses as the main character. But now we have Christ as the main character. And what John is going to show you is that Christ is far greater than this Moses. Moses longed for a prophet who would come. That's why we read about it. Between the songs, right? He longed for this prophet. Of God. So in chapter 5, we see that Jesus is God. And we see this exaltation of his deity. Now we're going to see that Jesus is this great prophet. The exaltation of his humanity. So we're going to see this in chapter 6. It's almost like a little mini-series here in John. We're going to be breaking it up into four different sermons. In this one, we're going to be talking about this. The feeding of the 5,000. Next week, Adam's going to be preaching on Jesus Christ walking on water. Why do you think John would have this miraculous water occurrence in the context of the Exodus? What do you think he could be doing, right? After that, you have this discourse of that he is the bread of life in the context of the feeding. And then finally, they beginning listening to the words of Christ and they say, this is too hard. This is too hard. I'm going to turn away. And Jesus tells him, yeah, I knew you would. I know. It is hard. What about you, Peter? I can't. You have the words of life. So that's where we're going to be going in the next several weeks as we go through chapter 6 years. So let's look at the text here. This following. What, why, why, why are they following him? Verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him. Why? Read, read it. Because they saw the signs that he was doing to the sick. This is not a commendation on their motives in following Christ. And to be honest, it's not a, an enduring reason as well. You see so many of them by the end of the chapter turn away. They come because their motive is centered around themselves. They want to see, they want to experience, they themselves, they want to be healed. And that is their motives. But what about you? What are your motives in, in coming here, coming to Christ? And examine them because be afraid as one of you taught me this week, um, he might give it to you. You come to him because he's hungry and he feeds you and you're content and you walk away. You come to him because you're sick and he heals you and you're content and then you walk away. Or you come to him because of your struggles with lust or drunk, drinking or laziness or unfaithfulness to your husband or wife. And that's absolved, and that's resolved, and you're content, and then you walk away. Isn't that where Satan would love for you to stay? Just right there, content. 
Isn't that where he would love for you to stay? Be weary of your selfish reasons in coming to Christ. It is good, obviously, it is good to come to him with everything, with all of your concerns and with all your cares, absolutely. But then, if that is your only reason, you don't have Christ, you have this idol who's going to give you whatever you want. So, bring everything you have to Christ, yes, absolutely. Bring all of your concerns, your, concern, your, your struggles. Bring them to Christ. But then stay there. Because he alone is worthy to be worshipped and honored and adored in all circumstances. Just, just this week, I was brought to tears by, by one of you who got a troubling diagnosis. And it, it brought them to go to Christ. And I'm weeping as they're praying that they don't so much want to be healed, they just want the will of God to be done. That's what it looks like to bring everything you have to Christ and then stay there. Because whatever His will is, if you feed me or no, if you take away this habit, this addiction, Whatever, God, it's in your hands. I just want your will to be done. Examine your hearts and know why you are coming to Christ. Verse 3, let's go back to the text. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy the bread so that all these people may eat? And he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Christ is here in the middle of this mountain retreat with his disciples. And then he can't help Something happens, he turns it into a good teaching moment, like a, like a good teacher or a good parent. And it's likely that this, this Passover is happening, right? So it's likely that this large crowd is coalescing as they're making their journey around the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan, around Jericho, and then up to Jerusalem. But they, wanted, they can't help themselves. They, they've heard about this man. They want, to come, they want to go find him. He's around here somewhere. This man that they've been hearing about. And they had just sat down and Jesus looks up and he sees the multitudes coming at him. So then he, he turns to Philip and he says, Philip, see those guys over there, all of them. Yes, yes, I do. Well, it looks like you have quite a problem on your hands here, Philip. What are you going to do? Just to test him. Because he knew what he was going to do. He was going to feed the people. And then teach him that man does not live on bread alone. Bringing both physical and spiritual resolution to their, their temporal, their temporal problem. So let's go back here and see what he does. Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get. Just, just a little, just a little, not to be filled, but just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Here's a boy. Here, he has five lo barley loaves 
and two fish. But what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who receded. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Left to our own means, so this is quite the dilemma. With the crowds coming, and it's just you and your disciples, but the crowds are coming in, and they're coming to you. Thousands upon thousands, and Christ is moved with compassion. And it's this pity and this compassion that he has for them that brings a conclusion to his rest with the disciples. And the sun is beginning to set, as we know. And you don't have enough money or even a market to buy the food, so what are you going to do? Philip has no answer. And... Uh, Andrew does his best to come up with this idea, right? Um, so here's this boy with a little bit of food and even less fish. But he, even he realizes that it's woefully inadequate. I mean, what are, what are five loaves and two fish for, for so many? It's kind of that moment when, when someone looks at you and you know you should have the answer, but you know you don't have the answer. So you're kind of waiting, but they're still looking at you. And so you go, all right, I'll say something. And you know it's not the best, but you don't realize how bad it is until you actually hear yourself saying it. So, so he says, you're like, oh, we have this boy here, but uh, even that's not going to work, right? That's not going to work at all. And that's kind of what's happening with Andrew. And, but they're looking to Christ and go, what are we, what are we going to do? You know, should we send him away? Well, that makes sense. I mean, what are they doing out here? It's almost, it's getting dark. They shouldn't be out here. They should have their own food. I mean, that's rather foolish of them. They look to him, waiting, waiting. He says, have the people sit down. You can just see it in your eyes. The, the disciples going, yes, he's going to do something. He's going to do something. He's not sending him away. This is going to be awesome. Go, go, sit down, sit down. There's plenty of grass. Go ahead, go ahead. Sit down, sit down, sit down. Jesus takes the loaves and he breaks them and he gives the traditional prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, for you cause bread to come out of the earth. And he goes to the group over there, and you see him, and he begins to break the bread and feed them. And you hear this murmuring going on. And he's coming closer, and you hear the murmuring following him. And then he comes to you where you're seated there. And he begins to give you of himself all that you could imagine. as though it was, it was more than enough that what he had. And you know that by feeding you, he's actually exercising his dominion over you. It's this, as one Greek scholar said, it's this life-giving act of sovereignty to feed someone. You're giving them life, but you've, you're showing your sovereignty over them as well. So just pause here. From the vantage point of the disciples, um, we look at we look at Andrew, and we think that what we have is not enough, right? 
five loaves, two fish. Well, that's, that's, all right, here you go. And, and it's true. What you have is not enough. You're, you're a wretched sinner. And that, that part is right. You, what you have to offer is nothing. It's not enough. But what you have through Christ is more than enough. So you're thinking, well, I'm not that gifted. I'm, I'm shy or this or all I do is fold bulletins. Well, no, there's more than enough. It's beautiful. Through Christ, it is more than enough. It's a miraculous, joyful, beautiful thing. Left on your own, it's not enough, and you're going to be dribbling in bitterness. Don't do that. Whatever you have, whatever gifting, just this little bit, these little morsels, this little tiny fish, not the regular fish, it's those little tiny fish. Yeah, just, just give it. Just give it. In Christ, it's, it's more than enough. So that he might get the glory, not you, not your wisdom, not your your insights, but that he might get the, all of the glory working through you. Okay, so how does this conclude? We, we've seen the crowds coming. We know the motives are not, are not pure. They just... And we see how John has been paralleling this with the Exodus. Remember, we have this prophet who's miraculously feeding people after the Passover, in the context of the Passover in the wilderness and through sovereign provision Christ causes what is so little what we have to offer is so little and Christ causes it to be so much so now let's see the response of the people here in verse, we'll start in verse 12 and when they had eaten their fill he told the disciples gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So what's the conclusion of all this? It's the same conclusion that Peter had, or Philip had, when he first saw Christ in chapter 1, as you will recall. He said, we have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus is this great prophet. Their conclusion is absolutely correct. Jesus is this great prophet that Moses had been looking for and longing for, knowing his own inadequacies, that he had killed a man, that he had struck a rock, that he had not been entirely faithful. There is another man who will come and lead his people to the true promised land, and he will be able to enter that promised land and bring them true rest. Jesus is this great prophet who comes and brings the word. That's what a prophet is, who comes and brings the word of God revelation of God to his people. So you notice that their idea of who he is as the prophet is correct. But the what, they absolutely miss. He is a prophet. True. Okay, let's make him king. Bad idea. Really, really bad idea. Let him go to the cross. Let him go to the cross. He is the king. Let him demonstrate it on his own terms. 
Moses has been looking for him. They have the right, this idea of the who, as we, as we read between the songs here. The Lord your God will rise, raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. So we have this great prophet. And we get it wrong. What should we do? They want to exalt him and make him king. But what do we do? What do we know? What do we do knowing that he is the great prophet? Number one, you listen to him. Listen to him. He's the prophet of God. There are countless things and voices clamoring. Clamoring for your attention. But there is only one true prophet of God. In the midst of all of these noises going on. You must have the clarity and sobriety to listen to only one voice. And that is Christ. And as the prophet of God, he's going to come and he's going to tell you some really hard things. Because as the light of Christ comes and shines in your heart, it's going to expose the sin within your heart. And it's going to pull it out and extract it. But sometimes, most of the time, you're going to hold on to that sin. And so then the sayings of the great prophet of Christ are going to be incredibly difficult. And you're going to water, water them down. You're going to want to smooth off the edges a little bit so they don't cut so hard, so they don't cut so deep. They are hard things. What does he say as the prophet? If your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Gouge out your eye. It is better that you lose one of the members of your body than you have whole, your, all of your members thrown into hell. Is that true? Is he the prophet? What about when he says to you, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love them. Those who maligned you, those who have hurt you in your past. Don't just close off that chapter of your life. Love them. And don't be bitter, but pray for those who persecute you. See, it's awesome having Christ as a prophet, but then when you have to listen to what he says, that's, that's, that's a different story. But what if he says to you, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will my Father in heaven forgive you of yours. Are you listening to the prophet? Even though it's difficult, that old boyfriend, that old girlfriend, have you forgiven them? Your husband, your wife, have you forgiven them? So that your Father in heaven may also forgive you. What about when he says to the man who wanted to follow him, but he said, let me bury my parents first. And he tells him, let the dead bury the dead. Go on. That's, no, you, if you're going to follow me, you're going to follow me. Let, let, the, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. What about when he says, whoever loves your father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves parents, listen to this, whoever loves their son or daughters more than me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So we think, we think their response is foolish because they want to make him a king. Because they don't listen to the prophet, but we do the same thing. We love Christ as a prophet, but to sit under his words and sit at his feet is a terrifying thing. You must not water it down. You must not draw it down. He will bring you to the end of yourself. And at this point of desperation, you're saying, I can't do all of this. I can't do it. And he's going to say, what are you, are you going to turn away? And then, no. What, what else are you going to say? No, I, I can't. I know you have the words of life. Where else am I going to go? It is to you and you alone that I, I can live and live by your word. So then how do you listen to him? You must, you must be in the word. There's no way around it. We've constructed all of these things of who we want Jesus to be. And the only way we can deconstruct that idol is to be in the word and have the word of God construct who Christ is. If you are, you, you must, there's no way around it. You have to be in the Word. If you're scrolling on your phone before you even get out of bed, but yet you don't have time to read the Word, you should be very afraid for the sake, state of your soul. Come to the Word. Sit under the prophet of God. See what Christ has to say. Come and make time to read the Bible, to drink of this nectar of God. It's a beautiful thing. You must be in the Word. And when you do, you will encounter these difficult things, these difficult sayings that we went over. But there's no way you can turn away once He has brought you from death to life. It's difficult, but you come and come and come to Him again and again and again. All right, so what do we do? One, listen to the prophet. Number two, feed his sheep. John develops this very beautifully. Where do you see fish and bread again? You see it here in chapter six. And then at the end of the gospel, Jesus is at a charcoal fire. And Peter, who has just betrayed him three times, and some of the other disciples, they come and there's this ichthus, which you guys know is fish. And then there's this asparion, these, these small fish that we had in, in here in chapter 6. And then, then in chapter 21, only time they're mentioned. And these small fish that would have been salted and smoked. And in eyeshot of where they fed the 5,000, here they are again breaking bread with these fish. And Jesus, who's about to go back to the Father, he turns to Peter. He said, it was, it was me who was feeding the others, right? But now, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. What do you do? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. What? Well, then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Conclusion. Feed my sheep. All of this is happening within eye shot, again, of the feeding of the 5,000 with the, with the same type of fish and with the breaking of the bread. 
But this command isn't just for Peter or the disciples or the apostles or these first generation or first century of Christians. This is for all of you to feed the sheep of Christ, to bring them the word. Bring them to your husband, to your wife, mothers, as you're raising up your children, bring them the word. Fathers, lead your families in family worship. Bring them the word of Christ. Saturate your homes in the word of Christ. We have all sat at the feet of this great prophet. Now let's bring others his word that they too may feast upon him. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, your love for us is beyond measure. We are so humbled to know that we are loved by you, even though we don't deserve it. We run away, God, and you have fed us and nourished us, not just physically, but God, spiritually. Let us continue to feast upon your Son, who is the bread of life, and sustain ourselves entirely upon him, knowing that he is the one who brings the word of God and there is no one else to whom we may go. God, render our hearts broken until they come to you again and again and again and enliven our hearts as we come now to partake of the Lord's Supper to again spiritually feast upon your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.